Psalm 97, if you've got your Bibles there, um, please turn, turn to Psalm 97. And I don't know if, as you were listening to Porig read Psalm 97 or following along uh, with him as he was reading through it, if you noticed that in verse 1 and in verse 12, bookending the psalm, is this word rejoice. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. And that was really, really struck out to me. Rejoice, rejoice. And I don't know about you, I don't know what your attitude when you come to church on a Sunday morning is, or during the week, when you think about praising and worshiping God, rejoicing, giving thanks to God. There's a story about a, a British member of parliament whose name was Neil Martin. One day he was uh, giving a tour uh, of the Houses of Parliament to some of his constituents, a guided tour around the Houses of Parliament. And during the course of this visit, the group happened to come across um, the Lord Chancellor. Now, I don't know if, if you know anything about kind of British regalia, but the Lord Chancellor would have been wearing a cape and a robe and lots of kind of fur trim and lots of uh, kind of gold as well, because it's, it's, it's quite an important role or the regalia of his office. The Lord Chancellor recognized Neil Martin, this member of parliament, among the group. And the story goes, he cried out, Neil! And seeing this man in all his regalia, the group knelt. <laughs> Maybe you think of worship as a command and something that you have to do. Or maybe in contrast, you're more like C.S. Lewis. He wrote, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is a pointed consummation. If it were possible for a created soul fully to appreciate, that is to love and delight in the worthiest object of all, and simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme blessedness. To praise God fully, we must suppose ourselves to be in perfect love with God, drowned in, dissolved by that delight, which far from remaining, pent up within ourselves as incommunicable bliss, flows out from us incessantly, again, in effortless and perfect expression. Our joy is no more separable from the praise in which it liberates and utters itself than the brightness a mirror receives is separable from the brightness it sheds. I love the way that he's talking there about rather than our praise, our thankfulness to God being held inside us and pent up inside us, it flows out in effortless and perfect expression of worship. So on a scale between those points, where do you sit? Where do you sit in your worship? Is it a command or is it in that joyfulness that you come to God, the Lord who reigns, and bring his worship? See, this is a, this is a psalm that we're going to look at in a bit more detail in a moment. It's the fifth of a group of eight psalms where the central themes are the Lord God reigning, his kingship, and rejoicing in that kingship.
So just hold those ideas as we look in a bit more detail at this psalm and think about your worship to the Lord and how, how it might be that you can express more joy in your worship of God. So the psalm opens, the Lord reigns, the Lord reigns. Notice it's not the Lord has reigned or the Lord will reign. The Lord reigns. He is king and is continuing to be king. This is, as well as being a, a fact, this is, this is a verb, it's an act. This isn't just a statement of fact. This is the Lord reigning and continuing to reign, being the king. Nor is this expressing a kind of a recent coronation of God either. Because the psalm is talking about his glory. The psalmist is talking about the Lord's glory and showing his glory through all time, from the very beginning of time through to the end of time. The Lord's glory shines through in this psalm, doesn't it? And that's, that's what causes us to bring our praise and worship to God, this amazing glory. And as the Lord's glory shines through and shines through the whole of time, we see as well that the world needs to accept this. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, it says in verse two. When the world accepts that the Lord reigns and then the earth rejoices and the many nations are glad, then everything will be as it should be on the final day that we read about in Revelation. And there's this, there's this phrase in there, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands, it says in the ESV, or uh, in the NIV it translates it as, um, uh, let all uh, the distant shores rejoice. Or you could say, let all the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Let all the earth be glad. If you uh, read back, maybe it's even on the same page uh, in your Bible, into Psalm 96, verses 10 and 11. You see the same song, the same kind of song. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. It's this song, let the Lord reigns. We need to lift this song up as we bring our worship to God. This should be our song, shouldn't it? That the Lord reigns in our hearts, in our lives. Next week, we're going to uh, go back into Romans and we're going to see that Paul taught as he went about his mission in word and in deed. And we need to let our lives sing this song as well as our mouths. We need to let the things that we do sing this song that the Lord reigns in our lives. And so we all see that if we do that, 
We join in this song, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. And that, that phrase, let the distant shores rejoice, let the uh, many coastlands be glad, we wouldn't have been able to do that if somebody hadn't taught us that the Lord reigned, if we hadn't heard the message that the Lord reigns, if that message hadn't come to us. And so it put me in mind as well of Jesus's command to his disciples to go and therefore make disciples of all nations. And so as our song, our mouths, our words, and our deeds, our lives, sing this song, then we can go out and join in that great commission, that great command to go and make disciples of all nations, to go out and to help people see that they can join in this song as well, letting the many coastlands be glad. The Lord reigns. And in verses two and three, we see cloud in clouds and in fire on a throne of righteousness and justice. So we see this echoed in many of the other Psalms as well. Psalm uh, 18, for instance, just starting at verse nine. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was, was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. This is... The Lord reigning, isn't it? This is the Lord delivering judgment in clouds of fire. In that uh, passage from Psalm 18, throwing down thunderbolts and throwing out hailstones. But the Lord reigns. Here in Psalm 97, we see in clouds and thick darkness are all around him. But his righteousness and justice, they're the foundation on which his throne sits. And what a foundation on which a throne is gonna sit. If you're gonna ask for a king, can you ask for anything better of a king who's gonna reign over you than that his throne is founded on righteousness and, in ju and on justice? You're not gonna get the social media complaints that we get about governments today if your king, his throne is founded on righteousness and justice, because that's exactly what you want a king to be. That's perfect kingship. And what's the response to that kind of king, that kind of God? Well, this, this psalm, uh, there's some suggestion that maybe it was sung um, occasionally at a feast that the Jews had, uh, where they commemorated the shelter that they had in the desert as part of their pilgrimage to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, where they uh, celebrated some of what happened in the desert in the story of Exodus. But there's also reflections here in these verses of Exodus chapter 19, verses 9 uh, and 16 and 17.
The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And the writer of the letter to the Hebrews reflects on that in chapter 12. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. In that passage in Exodus, it's Moses who trembles with fear. But here, in Psalm 97 and verse 4, his lightnings light up the world, the earth sees and trembles. But is this out of, is this out of fear? Is this out of uh, just total being afraid? No, because we've already read, the Lord reigns, the earth is glad. And so, yes, there is a right, rightful fear here of the, the Lord who is reigning and who is burning up his adversaries all around him and lighting up the world with his lightning. The earth sees and trembles, but the earth is glad, it rejoices, and the, coast, the many coastlines, the many nations are glad. And then in verse six, we read, the heavens proclaim his righteousness, the righteousness on which the throne of the Lord is built. And so what? So that all the peoples see his glory. So that all the peoples see his glory. This is, this is worship, isn't it? And as we continue to live our lives, as we continue to sing this song that the Lord reigns in our lives, as we use our mouths and our deeds to put this into practice in our, in our lives, then we project the glory of God, don't we? we? We proclaim the glory of God as we go, just as here the people see his glory as the heavens proclaim his righteousness. We too can proclaim the Lord's righteousness as we worship him in our lives. And so, and so as Moses fell in worship on Mount Sinai, this is what we need to do in our hearts, isn't it, as well, is to fall before the Lord and worship him day by day with everything that we do. Verse eight, Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are, are exalted far above all gods. This, this is the Lord. Again, there's this gladness here. Although they're hearing his judgments, and we'll come to think about this again in a, in a little bit, they're glad and rejoicing because of his judgments. Glad and praising the Lord for what he's done. In the city of Zion, Zion hears and is glad. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, says Psalm 48, verse one. And of course, we know that at the end of the Bible, there is a promise of a new Jerusalem, a new city of God, 
where we will be able to join in praise and worship forever, worshiping God, giving him the praise that is due to him. And so we see then, all worshippers of image is, in verse seven, all worshippers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Who is it that we're to worship? Well, it's not the idols. Worshippers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. The idols, the images that are worshipped around Israel, in the nations around Israel, are worthless. Are worthless. Their worshippers are put to shame by these judgments of the Lord. So what are our idols today? They're not going to be poles that we set up I don't think they're going to be kind of gold statues of of gods necessarily. What are the idols that we can worship instead of worshiping the Lord? They're the things that distract us from God, aren't they? They're the things that we tend to want to put ahead of him. Think about what it is that gets in the way of our worship of God. For some of it, it's going to be money. For some of it, it's going to be health. For some of it, it's going to be our jobs and our careers. For some of us, it might be our families that we worship ahead of God. But these things are never going to repair the tears in the fabric of our being that sin puts in there. turning away from God puts in there. We can't rely on those idols to fix the the tears in the fabric of our being. Only God can do that. And so it's God that we should worship. The ESV then says, worship him, all you gods. All of those idols, anything that's going to be worshipped that isn't the true God, the psalmist says, worship him, all you gods. Worship the Lord. The writer to the Hebrews paraphrases it in um, chapter 1 and verse 6. Let all God's angels worship him. So as at Bethlehem, the shepherds trembled, as we were hearing last week. But the angels brought this message of great joy. Here the whole earth is trembling and is glad as the distant shores rejoice, as the message of the good news of Jesus reaches the far corners of the earth. And there's two sides to this, aren't there? There's this destruction and the judgment that is poured out that we read of in verses three to five. Fire goes up before him, and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The Lord is completely clearing away anything that stands in opposition to him in these verses. Let's listen again to verse five. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine seeing if we went down to Salt Hill, looking out across the bay 
at the Burren, and imagine the hills just melting like a candle before the Lord. That's the imagery here, as the opposition to the Lord is wiped away. The worshippers of the images are put to shame. But there is a contrast. If you go to verse 10, O you who love the Lord, he preserves the lives of his saints, he delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. There is a need to respond to the Lord. O you who love the Lord, he preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Again, we're going to come back to Romans next week in chapter 15, and we're going to hear Paul asking the Roman church to pray for delivery from the hands of the wicked. But these assurances are here, aren't they? Oh, you who love the Lord, if you respond to the Lord, if you love him, he preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. But there's a requirement there as well that's put on those who love the Lord. Just at the end of that first sentence in verse 10. Hate evil. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. You can't you can't go through going on, going, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna love the Lord and these idols. I'm gonna love the Lord and carry on loving evil. We have to reject all of the attractions of evil. Now, we know that we're not perfect at that. We know we're not gonna go through our lives being able to do that because we're still imperfect. We're still sinners. But we can bring our confession to the Lord and thanks to what Jesus did on the cross. When we, when we really mean that, when we put that confession there before the Lord, trusting in his forgiveness, he will forgive us. So there's these assurances, these promises, in contrast to the destruction of the judgments of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. And this isn't doom and gloom for, these, for the, those who love the Lord either, is it? Look at verse 11. Light is sown for the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. It's a funny, funny thought, isn't it, to have light sown but the idea here is that light and joy are scattered like a seed along the path of the righteous, the, the path that these who love the Lord walk on. And it's ready to bloom in their lives. John Milton, in his poem, Paradise Lost, wrote, Now mourn her rosy steps, in the eastern clime advancing, sowed the earth with orient pearl. The idea of the sun rising and the light starting to spread. That's what Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, called the crux of this psalm in verse 11. 
that light starts to filter into our hearts. Joy, the joy of the Lord filters into our hearts and then starts to bloom and grow as we walk along our path, loving the Lord. And that leads us to rejoice as we sing in our lives, the Lord reigns as we worship. A.W. Tozer, who was an American pastor, wrote, what is worship? Worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder and overpowering love in the presence of that most ancient mystery, that majesty, our Father in heaven. And as we see in this psalm, the Lord reigns. He melts mountains before him as he casts away everything that stands against him. But for those who love him, those of us who love him, he preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hands of the wicked. He sows pearls of light and joy in our hearts that can bloom as we walk along in our lives with him. There is, in this psalm, that sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder and overpowering love, which we can bring in our worship to the Lord, day by day, as we tremble before the Lord in awe, as we sing the Lord reigns with what we say and what we do and how we live our lives, as we let others see his glory in us and in what he has done in our lives, leading for the many coastlands to be glad. And as we wait, the new Zion, the new Jerusalem on the last day. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Amen.